Welcome to the Normal Christian Life Podcast with Pastor Stephen Samuel. As you listen, we know that you will be encouraged and challenged to follow the normal Christian life that Jesus offers to us. We would love to hear how God is using this ministry in your life. So please visit us online at icathedral.org. You can also find useful information about our church and other resources that will help you grow in your journey with Christ. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's message. Uh, Let's open up to Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to kind of kick off tonight in our continued study. And uh, to do that, we need to uh, look at the last part of Romans chapter 7. Just real basically, Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7 is he's concluding this battle that's happening uh, in his thinking and and as he's writing, he's kind of putting it on paper. The struggle that we talked about last week, the struggle how to overcome Sin in your life, overcome sin nature in your life. Every Christian goes through that struggle where there's a season from the time that you were born again till the time that you feel you have victory over sin, you question your salvation. Am I really saved? Should I really be struggling with sin, struggling with this addiction, struggling with this problem? If I'm really saved, I shouldn't be struggling. And in part, that's kind of true, but there's a progressive work of salvation that happens over that season of time. Um, we see in, this, in Paul's writings, he says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. And, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this cursed body of sin? Something to that effect is what he says. And then he jumps into chapter 8, and he gives us the answer to his contention. But we have to understand his contention. He's not saying, I have no power over sin. He's saying there's a consistent struggle with sin in his thinking, in his day-to-day life. And so if the Apostle Paul tells us, I'm having this struggle, you and I are are on the same playing field, as in the great Apostle had this struggle, and he's writing this after about 14, maybe 15 years. No, I take that back. Maybe 20 years after his conversion, he's writing this. So it's not like he's a new believer, and he's like, hey, I'm just... But he says, there's this nature, there's drive inside of me, and he calls it the law of sin, right? Or the principles of sin, is struggling through, is working in me, and there's also the law of the Spirit that's working in me, and there's this conflict between these two. We've seen it many times in somewhat of a comical sense where somebody has like an angel on one shoulder and a demon on the other shoulder, and they're warring. Well, that thought process happens to every believer. But the longer you follow the Lord, the more victory you can have, and it's no longer a battle in your thinking, but you have literally walked into the revelation or you're living the revelation of sin will not have dominion over me. And there's a place of rest that Hebrews talks about where we enter into that rest where we are assured in our authority in Christ, assured in our salvation, and then finally assured in our victory over the nature of sin that tries to rise up in us. It doesn't happen automatically. It takes a lot of, um, for lack of a better term, a lot of work and consistency in being led by the Holy Spirit to put to death the works of the flesh. And that's kind of where we're starting. So as, as Paul lays out that contention, then he jumps into Romans, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 8. And well, let me, let me jump back here to Romans chapter 7, verse 14. I'll read it to you. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual. And the word law there is pneumata. Tikos, I think, pneumatikos, which means it's of the spirit. So the moral law that God gives us, it is of the spirit or it comes from the Holy Spirit. So the moral law is not evil. 
But he says, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Everyone is born carnal. You don't have to teach kids how to be bad. They just naturally know how to be bad. You don't have to tell them how to teach them how to steal or how to lie or cheat. They just naturally know how to do those things, right? No lessons given there, okay? And then he says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. And C.S. Lewis has a great um, summation of this concept in his book, Mirror Christianity. He says, everyone knows right from wrong, but the knowledge of knowing right from wrong no, it does not empower us to do right when wrong is presented. Just because we're conscious of a moral law doesn't mean we have the ability to always keep it. And that's what Paul is essentially saying here. Even though we struggle to keep the law, we affirm that it is good. Then read verse 17. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, when I read this, I thought, is Paul shifting the blame here? Is he blaming the nature of sin for his bad behavior and not taking personal responsibility? That's not really the case. What he's saying is this is the source of my evil behavior. It's sin that's working in me, but at no time are we um, escaping or we're relinquishing the responsibility that each one has. I'll tell you a fun little story. When we were when we were at our last house, we were in a nice little neighborhood that was, you know, a nice HOA community around us, but we weren't in the HOA. And so uh, all the houses around us, I say that, were really nice, the manicured lawns and all that stuff. And, you know, we tried to keep up with our yard or whatever. And so our kids loved walking around that neighborhood. Well, it was right about the time, uh, I think it was Shiloh, just started learning how to walk, you know. And so We'd, he'd be playing in the backyard all the time. Well, one, one day, you know, and he's walking pretty good, he walked out the front door and went over to the neighbor's house. Well, the neighbors are good friends of ours. Doctor, they were Dr. Fosler and his wife. And uh, so he's over there, and my wife is looking for him, not in a panic, and he's just kind of wondering where he went. And she opens the door, and she looks across the street, and there he is on top of this big concrete thing that marks the HOA you know, community name. It's like a big concrete block with like pillars. And he's on top of it with his pants down using the bathroom <laughs> on top of the thing. Oh, well, she was horrified. She runs out of the house, grabs him off the thing. And of course, it's too late by then, right? Grabs him off the thing, brings him back into the house. And of course, consequences be as they may happen. And so finally, she was like, what are you thinking? What were you thinking? Of course, Shiloh, you know, he's about four years old, you know, three, four years old. He goes, Mom, God told me to do it. <laughs> Best answer ever. He said, I prayed about it. God told me to do it. <laughs> of course, Jen couldn't help but laughing, and then we had to go clean up the mess that God told him to make. I say that to say this. A lot of times, we can get very confused with what the voice of God is in our heart and what the voice of self is in our heart, right? Even a little four-year-old, he's like, well, maybe God told me to do it. And so that struggle is real for everybody in their thought process. We sometimes, it's not such comical, idea, comical situations, but there's significant situations in our life where we think we hear God's voice, but we're unsure and sometimes we can make the wrong decision. So Paul is speaking of that battle inside of him. Verse 19, he says, For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. For if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who does it, but sin that dwells in me. For I find this law or principle that evil is present with me. Notice he doesn't say within me. It's present 
with me. There's the voice of the enemy speaking to our carnal nature to do things. And then keep reading here. It says, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. And that's a little different because inside he delights to do what? Delight in the law of God. Inside he desires to delight in the law of God. But there's this nature of sin that's kind of with him on his shoulder that's pushing him to break the moral law of God. When we are saved, our inward man, the redeemed man, desires good. And then read verse 23. He says, But I see another law or principle in my members, warring against the law or the principle of my mind, and bringing me into the captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through the Lord Jesus Christ our Lord, so that with my mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. And that's the battle that he's speaking of here. I wish I had more time to spend on that, but I will summarize it like this. The battle never goes away. You just get better at fighting it. The battle never goes away. You just get better at fighting it. It's kind of like when you're driving your car. The possibility of getting in a wreck is always there. Your fault, somebody else's fault, it's always there. But the more you drive, the better you get in safe driving. There's always a possibility. You could slightly turn your wheel one way and consciously run right off the road. No matter how long you've been driving, you can get in a wreck. But the longer you drive, the less likely you are to fall into hazardous driving conditions because you're smarter, hopefully. (laughs) Hopefully. Unless you're texting and driving, then, well, we won't go there. Okay. So the battle doesn't ever go away until our body is completely redeemed. And that happens at the resurrection. Now, that's not to say that gives us an excuse to sin. We can live an overcoming life with victory over sin, but the possibility of sinning is always there. But when our new body comes, when we're resurrected, and the life to come, there's no possibility of sin any longer, right? Sin and its dominion, its presence, its power, it's completely terminated. Keep reading here. It says, point one, with, we begin with the tension Paul writes about concerning his desire to do what is good, but another desire to do what is evil. This tension is in the life of every human. We have a conscience that tells us right from wrong, but the willpower to always choose what is right is deficient. The struggle is in the life of the unbeliever and the believer. But in the life of the believer, it's less powerful. The unbeliever cannot choose to just put away sin nature. It'll come up in some way or the other. But the believer can choose, I'm not going to be like this. The deficient nature is called the carnal nature. It forces us to realize our weakness when we are made aware of the law of God. That constant pull of the carnal nature should push us to a place where we say, Holy Spirit, I need your help. And that's what what the enemy meant for evil in the real context of what that scripture means. What the enemy means for evil, God can cause us to, can lead us to a great reliance on the Holy Spirit's voice. And the greater reliance we have on his voice, the easier it is to walk in the spirit, as we're going to read here. The point that Paul's trying to make as he's concluding chapter 7, it says, This battle leads to condemnation within our soul. Thus, the problem with relationship with God and others can be traced back to feelings of condemnation. And this is the next big word that Paul talks about. First, he spoke about righteousness. 
then justification, and now he's gonna speak about condemnation. That's the next big word. Condemnation, and it goes back to a little bit of what we discussed when we were going through the book of Ephesians. It's the voice inside of your mind that keeps you critically in conversation against yourself. It's probably the best way I can put it. The voice in your mind that is constantly critical of you, it's not the devil, it's your voice, but you feel condemned for whatever reasons. Listen, I talk to, you know, in counseling people a lot, I talk to moms who struggled their whole life as they were raising their kids that I'm not a good mother. I'm not a good mother. I'm doing something wrong. I talk to men, talk to women. I'm not a good husband. I'm a horrible wife. I'm a horrible whatever. And there's this constant nagging of condemnation in our thoughts. Listen, that negative emotion is the singular reason many times for so many breakdowns emotionally in people. Breakdown in their relationship with each other, break down the relationship with God because they feel that that voice is truth. And it is a lie. Because Paul steps into this conversation, this writing here, and he says, in Christ, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Christ took upon himself the full weight of all condemnation that God would ever have against mankind, Jesus took it. Jesus took it. And because he took it, you and I no longer have to take it. We don't have to carry the consequence of sin, the presence of sin, the feelings of inadequacy, the feelings of less than when we take on his nature because he is the fulfillment of all righteousness. Now, when we talk about Righteousness, remember that's the norm of behavior or set of rules of behavior by which God judges the world and it's the very essence of his nature. We, when we look at being righteous, we're looking at being like him. But if he puts his righteousness on us, which is justification, he's saying, because I'm righteous, you're justified. The work of the cross. I mean, we just celebrated Easter, right? The big work of the cross was God declared us righteous And here's the crazy part. While you were a sinner, while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, declaring us righteous. What did Jesus mean when he said, it is finished? The work of declaring you righteous, or let me rephrase that, the work of making you righteous was finished. And then God steps in and says, now you're justified because Christ died and rose again. In his death, you were made righteous. So why did he have to rise again? So God could say, now you're justified. When Jesus rose from the dead, it's like the receipt for payment. If he would have died, then we would have no proof that his, his price paid was enough. But because he rose again, it was to say, it's finished, it's done, it's paid for. And the life that he lives, it's witness that we are Justified, he took on all sin so that we would take on no sin. Okay, keep reading here. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. And that word literally means the thought process 
by which we criticize ourselves, whether in small quantities or large quantities, when you find yourself being critical of yourself and you know it's the voice of condemnation because it's not constructive in any way, it's just repetitive and nagging and it keeps tearing you down. And this is how the condemnation works. Let's say I feel like I'm a bad dad, right? And I, and I see, you know, so-and-so post on their social media what a great dad they are, and then all of a sudden I feel condemned. And so I'll go out and I start doing things to make myself feel like I'm a good dad. And then guess what will happen? I will fail. And this cycle begins again. I'll see somebody doing something good or I'll hear scripture. Sometimes the greatest condemnation is the enemy uses the word of God to beat us down, right? Well, if you were really a Christian, if you're really a good dad, if you're really a good fill in the blank, if you're a really good preacher, if you're really good this, then condemnation steps in. And that voice of condemnation, it keeps going and going and going until you start telling yourself the truth of who you are in Christ. So he says, there is therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Literally, you were placed, your identity as a person was placed in the nature of Jesus when he died. It was put in him, and we talked about this last week about baptism. We are buried with him, and then we rise again coming out of the water, which means everything that Christ is, we are. Not was, is. Everything that Jesus is today In relationship to the Father, you are in relationship to the Father. 1 John, I believe he says, as he is, so are we in this world. And I know a lot of people use that scripture to, you know, cite the the authority we have to demonstrate supernatural power and healing and wonders. And that's true. But in essence, it's a justification statement. As he is, so are we in this world. Okay, so read on. It says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Okay, so look at this phrase here. What the law could not do, in that it was weak in the flesh. What was the law trying to do? It was trying to make us worthy enough to have relationship with God. The law was given so our behavior would be worthy enough to have relationship with God. Man was sinful, and God brought the law along to say, this is what your sins are. But the law couldn't do it because awareness of the moral law didn't give us power to keep it. So what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. So when Jesus comes in the likeness of sinful flesh, human being, right? And he lives the perfect life, sinless life, He does what? Fulfills the requirement of the law so that we can have relationship. All right, keep moving with me here. He condemned sin in the flesh. So in his human nature, he overcame the power of sin. His whole life, he never sinned, right? His whole life. And he condemned sin in the flesh, said, this is no longer gonna happen to humanity. And then read on here, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is a very key phrase because you can't enter into this place of righteousness and stay there if you walk in the flesh according to your carnal nature. But you can stay there if you walk in the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. 
Now, it all goes back to this one place, what your mind is doing. If I am constantly in relationship, communication, conversation with the Holy Spirit, that's the essence of walking in the Spirit. But if the thought of God's presence is absent from my thoughts regularly, then I'm walking according to that voice in my mind that is producing condemnation, guilt tripping you, constantly pushing you to do things out of a sense of obligation, out of a sense of fear, whatever the motivation, it's not being spirit-led. But if I'm in regular conversation with the Holy Spirit, then I'm being what? Led by the Holy Spirit. Verse six, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. Now this is the unique part of this passage. Even as a believer, If you say to yourself, I'm going to just be the most perfect person and keep all the moral law, I'm not going to break any commandments, you're stepping into the arm of the, or the ability of the flesh. You're now trying to keep the moral law by your ability. Well, Stephen, shouldn't we inspire people to be good? Absolutely. But how they do it is the determination of whether they'll be successful or unsuccessful. If we encourage people just to be moral for the sake of being moral, they're not going to be moral for long. Eventually, it will end up in pride, frustration, sin. Either way, on the, on the pendulum, you want to swing. If, they, if they're successful, then all of a sudden they become prideful in their ability to be righteous, and pride is the apex of all sins. And if they fail, then they're kind of condemned, and they're living in sin, behave, sinful behavior, so then they're condemned by the law. And so can people be good without God? That's the big question. According to the scriptures, No. People cannot be good without God because to fabricate a sense of goodness, you have to create your own moral law. And the moment you begin to create your law, there's always these little caveats that's exceptions for you to be a certain way. It's okay if I'm angry because I have all the void of responsibility. It's okay if I have a little lust problem because I'm such a good whatever, right? You create caveats. Well, I don't have any sin problems. I'm just really proud of the man that I am and what I've become, and Jesus helped me, and then pride starts stepping in, and then your righteousness is based on yourself. So can people be good without God? No, they can't, because he himself is the moral law giver. He set the standard, and relationship with him is the only means by which we are justified or made righteous. Okay, verse eight, y'all still with me? So then, this is what Paul is saying, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Impossibility. Those that are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse nine, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If the spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is, I'm sorry. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of, there's that word again, righteousness. Your spirit is alive the moment you realize I'm righteous and God put his righteousness on me. In the time that we've been doing this study, doing a little experiment in my head because I'm weird like that, I've been constantly telling myself, you're righteous. Every time I get frustrated with my kids, every time I get frustrated with timing or meetings or whatever, I have to stop and say, listen, Stephen, You're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And as much as the religious thought would tell you, well, that's just going to puff you up with pride, it brings a great sense of humility that God's righteousness is placed on me. 
And it doesn't make me rise to the occasion and be something I'm not. It humbles me in the occasion and forces me to be dependent on the God who made me righteous. And that's what Paul is speaking of here when he says that we're to be led by the Spirit. The greatest way to get the Spirit working, the Holy Spirit speaking into your thoughts, is to say what he's already said about you. You're meditating on the word. That's an old discipline that the early church fathers spoke of numerous times where we just meditate on the word. Why? It's not because it has some mysterious powers. It's a very blatant, honest, open. This is how it works. The more I meditate on the word of God, the Holy Spirit begins to engage into that conversation in my thinking. And I begin to think about myself like God thinks about me. I begin to think about others like God thinks about them. I begin to think about my finances like God thinks about my finances. And surprisingly, or maybe not so surprisingly, his thoughts are much better than my thoughts. And I have to start believing his thoughts are true and my thoughts are not. And so Paul says here, listen, if you are in Christ, your body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of the righteousness that's been put on you. But if the spirit who raised, of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It's a very powerful verse. Let me read it one more time. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. God put his spirit in us when we were saved. The moment you believed on the Lord Jesus, the transaction that happened was not just a payoff for sins. It was a union of God's spirit in your spirit. Now think about that for just a little bit. The spirit of the Lord that created the world, you remember that in Genesis chapter one, verse one? He says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form. Void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the spirit of the Lord moved upon the face of the deep, of the waters, and said, let there be light. That spirit is inside of you all the time. In fact, 1 Thessalonians, Paul, in talking about sexual sins, he talks about the, uh, whoever's you know, joined to a harlot is one with her, just as we are joined to the Lord and we are one spirit with him. So what happens, and I can't say in a material sense, but in an ideological sense or a spiritual sense, when you become a believer, God's spirit and your spirit become one spirit, just like a husband and a wife become one body, right? Now, you still are distinctively you. He's still distinctively him, but he's joined to you. And so in your conscious thought, there is the voice of the Holy Spirit, speaking to you, always there to guide you if you'll just listen. That's an incredible opportunity, ability that we as given as believers that no other religion offers anybody in the world. Because everyone else is ascending the, the, the ladder or the mountain of being righteous enough to be one with the great spirit with Hinduism, Nirvana is what they call it, Buddhism, they meditate their way up there, right? All these other works-based doctrines, you climb your way to the top. Early Gnostics, it was knowledge, more and more knowledge would eventually make you ascend out of the human state into the supernatural state. I mean, every world religion wants you to 
gain or acquire your way there. And Christ puts himself in us by the mere act of us believing. Holy Spirit is in me. Well, Stephen, I don't always feel like Holy Spirit's inside of me. It has no, it has no uh, reflection on how you feel. No weight of how you feel makes that any less true. The moment you believed, God's Spirit was put inside of you. And because his spirit was put inside of you, you can always say in your heart, Lord Jesus, I need you to speak to me. And guess what he will do? He'll speak to you. I think a lot of times we make it so much harder than it is. But he's always speaking. Well, can I do it all the time? Absolutely. That's what it means to be led by the spirit. And Paul's going to get into that here in a moment. Led by the spirit. Okay, read on here. Um, In the struggle to overcome the sin nature, Paul makes... Uh, writes one of the, oh, we got to get this point here. Um, let's go to the next point. Uh, point D there. It says, we are given a new law or principle of the Holy Spirit. So in Romans 8, verse, uh, let's see what verse he says that in. He says, verse um, two, for the law of the spirit of life has made me free from the law of sin and death. We are literally, verse, lib- liberated from two things. Number one, condemnation, that voice in our, in our soul that speaks to us. Our thoughts speaking to us critically, right? The second thing that we're liberated from is the bondage of sin and its deadly consequence. In Christ, we can go from having our minds set on the things of the flesh to living only conscious of the Holy Spirit's presence. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, Paul says this, I say then, walk or live in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Live in the Spirit, and you shall not Fulfilled the lust of the flesh. And what does that mean? Let's just be real practical here. Because sometimes we can use a lot of spiritual language and not know what we're talking about. It literally means engage with your thoughts regularly the voice of Holy Spirit and you will abstain from living in the flesh. If I'm always conscious, regularly push my mind to a place of consciously recognizing Holy Spirit is right here. It keeps me out of the flesh. Thank you so much for listening to this message. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear from you. Visit us at icathedral.org or on social media via Instagram and Facebook, or most easily by downloading our app, Cathedral Church, in the app store of your choice. Until next time, keep living that not-so-normal Christian life. God bless you.